So these types of values come from the top. So you, you don't have to be in the C-suite to set these. You, if you're running a part of people, you can just talk to them about the importance of this constant learning and evolution. And most of the best learnings in life come through moments of pain, come through failure, come through tough feedback, right? So it really comes from whoever is running that team to be able to say, hey, this is important. Let's focus on learning here rather than bashing each other up on, on failure. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What is your team culture like? What is your leadership style? How do you make decisions? These are all questions my client was recently asked. These questions came from different people, their current team, people who they were interviewing, who wanted to work for them, even their mentee. They all wanted to know, what's it like to work for you, to learn from you? And when I started working with this client, they had some generic answers that they could speak to each of these questions, but sometimes they weren't as confident in their answers as they'd like to be. Now they're able to confidently describe with examples, the cultures of their team their leadership style and how they make decisions aligned to what's important to them by describing their values, how they model those values and how they reward and recognize those behaviors. Can you answer those questions for yourself? Let's dig into these together. Join us in the catch crew, a place to grow your career intentionally, to get the skills to intentionally grow your career and your teams through your own leadership. When you join, you get instant access to team building tools, including values first, the course, a video-based course that highlights the most important exercises from my book, values first. You get the tools you need to build the life, career, and team culture that you want. Go to the catchgroup.com slash catch crew. That's the catchgroup.com slash catch crew. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. This season, we are featuring executives in the C-Suite, and today you get to hear my conversation with Sunina Sinha-Haldea. Sunina is the global head of the Private Capital Advisory Group. Prior to joining Raymond James, she was founder and managing partner of Sabel Capital, a placement agent and secondaries advisor which was acquired by Raymond James, a Fortune 500 and New York Stock Exchange listed company in May, 2021. Under her leadership, Sabelle Capital became quickly one of the leading advisors to private funds sponsors globally. In her tenure, she executed fundraises for leading private equity funds and completed over a hundred secondaries transactions for GPs and LPs alike including multifarious complex liquidity solutions. She was named one of the 50 most influential people in private equity by Dow Jones Private Equity News 
2022. She's also a prolific angel investor and non-executive director. She served as the chairman of the board of Mindful Chef, now Nestle, and chairman of the board of Barcor, now United Fitness Brands. She currently serves on the boards of SFC Energy AG, listed on the stocks, and Grana LLC. She's also been a guest lecturer at Stanford University, serves on the boards of the Stanford Institution for Economic Policy Research and the Stanford Lead Council. She has written and published case studies for the Stanford Technology Ventures Program in the Stanford School of Engineering. She's also a regular contributor on financial markets and private equity on CNBC, Bloomberg, BBC, and is often quoted in the media on market insights and private capital advisory. She has won numerous awards and accolades for entrepreneurship and leadership. Sunana is passionate about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. She often credits meditation as the key to her success and has shared her personal and professional journey on multiple podcasts. She's obtained a BS in management science and engineering and an MS in chemical engineering, both from Stanford University, where she was also a Mayfield fellow. She has an MBA from Harvard Business School. And in her spare time, she's also a keen wine enthusiast, having qualified as a certified sommelier from the Court of Masters Sommeliers. It was such a pleasure to get to spend time with Sunaina. She and I discussed so many important topics. We talked about her values of growth mindset and what it meant for her growing up and how she continues to be guided by it in her life now and how she weaves it into her leadership practices. We talked about how she prioritizes her time and what tools she uses to ground herself in her values. What I loved most about our conversation is how transparent she is in telling her story and giving very tangible advice and tools from her own experience. One of my favorite things that she mentioned is as a leader, how she models her values and gave a very transparent example of how she incentivizes her team, not focusing only on performance indicators, but the how they got there, the behaviors that they used. And we dig into that example and how she weaves in growth mindset there. It is truly a case study in how to build and incentivize a values-based culture. Sunina also tells us about her experiences as using meditation and her 10-year journey of that. We talked about how to be an observer of your own thoughts, how she's worked through imposter syndrome, and how she uses her voice and expertise often as the only woman or person of color in the rooms that she's in. I cannot wait for you to listen to this conversation. I know you'll gain a lot of actionable tools from this episode. Let's get started. Well, Sanina, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, and thank you so much for having me today, Laura. Yeah, I'm so excited that you have accepted our invitation to be here today, and I am just really interested in hearing your story. So would you tell us a little bit more about your background, life, and and career history? Absolutely, Laura. I'll try to keep it to the headlines and happy to take it anywhere you like thereafter. 
doctor. So while I was born in India, my family started traveling when I was eight years old. My dad was a diplomat. So grew up in sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, and then actually went to Southeast Asia and, and graduated high school in Vietnam, which was a fascinating place to be. After that, I went to college. I went to Stanford for my undergrad and master's, both in engineering, worked in the Bay Area for a couple of startups, and then went to Harvard Business School for my MBA. Thereafter, started my career in asset management, so in financial services. I worked at two large hedge funds, and after those two employment stints, decided to start my own business. Um, started a firm called Sibyl Capital about 10 years ago uh, and grew and built that business, a private equity advisory business that helped private equity firms grow their assets under management as well as do secondary transactions for them. I sold that business in 2021 to Raymond James. Raymond James is a Fortune 500 New York Stock Exchange listed business. Uh, and that was a, it was a terrific next step for me professionally as well as for the business. And now I'm the global head of private capital advisory for Raymond James, continuing to do the very same things, but for many more clients around the world, have a team of nearly 50 reporting to me in five different offices. Uh, I will say that creating, building, growing businesses is one of my life's callings. So apart from what I did in my own business, I also have helped several other entrepreneurs do it in theirs. So back to team that built a, a great business here, here in the UK called Mindful Chef that was sold to Nestle also in 2021. Another fitness business that was sold to another private equity back strategic also in 2021. So 2021 was a year of selling a few of my babies, if you will. But sit on a couple of boards, sit on the board of a clean energy business in Germany called SFC. It's publicly listed, terrific business working on clean fuel cells, much needed in this environment and then also sit on a board of a fintech business in brazil and a couple of boards at stanford so that's my story professionally personally i'm a full-time working mom of three three under nine so a full household and busy life yes i love the story and it seems like achievement kind of runs through lots of this where where did that come from is that something that was instilled in you within your family um, is that something that is more personality based? What do you think? You know, growing up, I, as far back as I can remember, my parents instilled in all of us, I'm the oldest of four, that outcomes don't matter, effort and journey matters more. They were teaching the growth mindset before Carol Dweck published yeah. her work and published that seminal book, which I think should be required reading for anyone who wants to be in the C-suite or, or is inspired to start a business. But they kept saying that, listen, it doesn't matter what happens. What really matters is how it happens, right? The effort, the lessons learned, the pivots using those lessons, that you know, intention with which you do your work, the energy with which you show up really is the, what defines you at the end of it. And I have, I like to say, and I'll say it time and time again, to be an entrepreneur, to be a business builder, whether it's within a large corporation like I am today or on my own, like I was for many, many years, is to become a ninja at failing. You've got to learn to mm -hmm. fail well. You've got to embrace failure, embrace feedback, because if you don't, you're, not, you're going to fail at failing. And that means you're not going to have a very successful uh, and happy journey in your own your business building efforts. 
So that was, you know, really started with family, but I saw that all around me, you know, growing, growing up in the emerging markets, Laura, you'll appreciate this, that life was not easy for the majority of the people around me. But I saw the hustle and I saw the energy and I saw the spirit of communities coming together to rally around entrepreneurs because they made the ecosystems thrive. That really made a huge difference on me and an early impression and certainly something I took with me in my adult life. I love that ninja at failing. I feel like there's so many companies uh, in the U.S. and that's where most of my experience is, U.S., a couple global companies, but that failing is not celebrated. It is, um, it is not rewarded and that holds us back a lot. Exactly. And I think that what happens is that that fear of failure, it's, it's a vicious cycle because the fear of failure leads directly to the fear of trying, which leads directly to less risk-taking and missed opportunities and, and then a life full of regrets and what could have been. It also, even if you then take the leap because you're so afraid of failing while you're doing, you're then either cutting corners and that's why you have a lot of this bad behavior that we sometimes see in corporate America and corporate you know, UK, corporate Europe, wherever, it's all the same, driven from the, I can't be seen to fail. I can't be seen to be given a negative review or a negative feedback because that would be the end all be all of me. Well, you know, again, you're going down a path where there's just nothing good happens and the journey is miserable. Forget the outcomes. The journey of living like that, of being afraid of your own shadow, afraid of what people think of you, afraid of getting it wrong is a miserable journey. The journey of perfectionism. And if you think about perfectionists, by definition, they, they are so uptight in terms of getting it perfectly on the dot that there's no flow. There's no fun and relaxation. And at the end of the day, we, we, we have to have that. Otherwise, what are we doing all of this for? So you, the flip side of it is, hey, when you're okay getting knocked and you, you say, okay, why is this moment here for me? What is this here to teach me? If you learn the lesson, the funny thing is that you go on and make new mistakes, but the same ones won't happen again because you learned the lesson, right? I shouldn't yeah. touch that grill that's next to the fire. It's hot. I could burn myself. Right. You may go then stub your toe on, on the piece of furniture next to the fireplace, but you won't go touch that grill. And that's the, that's the beauty is that if you keep learning the lessons, you keep pivoting and growing and you learn new ones and you use those to grow. But if you don't learn the lessons and you don't listen to what's being, being taught to you by the universe, by that event that's happened, what, what ends up happening, Laura, is that the same issue repeats itself just with different characters, with a different set, but the issue is exactly the same until you learn it. So now when something happens that sets me back, I literally will force myself, discipline myself to sit down and understand what are the different things? Where did this start? Where did I do wrong? Not what, what happened with anyone else or he said or she said. What is my responsibility? 100% responsibility here, no more, no less, that I can own to have avoided the situation. And there's always four or five in every single issue that comes up every single day. So really important to go through that path. I love that you named perfectionism here and that fear of failing because I, I think in so many things that we do, um, we potentially don't even try, um, because we don't, we don't want to fail, but if I don't try, I won't fail. Right. And so I'm almost protecting myself from that failure. But to your point, it's, 
you're not going to learn. Potentially we're going to make the same mistakes over and over again. But I, I feel like sometimes we're our own worst enemy on some of this stuff when it's career or trying something new, um, doing it in a different way, pushing back on systems that are not working and we're just not rewarded for it. So how do you, within your teams and companies that you've led, how do you reward that ability to be a ninja at failure? How do you do that within the teams that you lead? Firstly, I do that by setting the value system as the growth mindset and explaining to newcomers and old timers alike what the growth mindset is because people tend to forget. Number one. Number two, by making it okay to make mistakes, you suddenly open up the accountability set, right? So instead of people constantly blaming each other, you suddenly get the odd person here and there starting to embody a different type of accountability, which is actually, I should have done that better. I should have caught that. And then for them to see me react to that as their leader, to say, thank you for owning that. Glad we learned the lesson. Moving on. Every time we get something wrong or we lose something, right? So for example, we may be pitching for a piece of business for a new client and we lost that. I make sure I speak to the team that's involved. Hey, what did we learn from this, right? The emphasis on what did we learn from this, not who did this that got it wrong, that lost us the pitch. Or it's like, what could I have done better? What did we learn from this opportunity? And to make that constant learning and evolution and growth a part of the day-to-day journey here. My mantra is simple, Laura. If I have somebody who walks into my office and says, you know what, such and such a thing has gone wrong or hasn't gone as well as we would have liked. And here, you know what, I'm reflecting on what I could have done wrong. Or here are the two things that I've discovered we could do better. Or actually, I own my part on this, my bad. I have all the time. I will give that person a thousand chances, right? Because at least they embody the growth mindset. And it may be that I give them a number of chances and they're still getting that role wrong, but they embody the values of my business. And then they have to be repositioned to another role where they can thrive. But at least I've got someone who can learn and learn quickly. That adaptability and learning muscle is there and real. If I had the flip side, if someone was like, well, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. I don't know what happened. I didn't do it. It it wasn't me. But if that's the defense mechanism that goes up every time something goes wrong, then that forget how good that person is at their job. They're likely not a good fit for our organization. So these types of values come from the top. So you you don't have to be in the C-suite to set these. If you're running a pot of people, you can just talk to them about the importance of this constant learning and evolution. And most of the best learnings in life come through moments of pain, come through failure, come through tough feedback, right? So it really comes from whoever is running that team to be able to say, hey, this is important. Let's focus on learning here rather than bashing each other up on on failure. I love that example of setting a value system. And with that example, it's growth mindset. Then you modeling the behavior as the leader and then you reinforcing it within one-on-ones and team meetings. And to your point, if they're living the value, the outcome is less, it's more about the how and the behaviors of that value. And so if there's incongruence in some of those, then to your point, it's a, it's a misalignment of values and culture. And so that's the, that's the indicator that maybe this isn't the right fit for the person and for the company. That's right, Laura. And And we take this one step further. We have a two by two system of measuring performance, 
right? On the y-axis, on the vertical axis, is is KPIs, right? Is it's it, whatever the outcome is in your business, whether it's sales or revenue or profitability or whatever the numerical outputs are. If you're marketing, then it's, then it's obviously engagement stats and so on. Doesn't matter what it is, but we have that performance at low high. On the horizontal axis, on the x-axis, we have culture fit, low and high. And we describe to everybody on our team what culture fit means. We say it's growth mindset, it's these values, and they're written down and we show them to everyone who joins our team. And that's on low high. And at the end of each year, we rank everybody on the team. Where are they on this two by two? Our superstars are those that embody both high highs, right? Those are the folks we want to retain. They obviously get the culture and they get, then they're performing phenomenal. You know, the second most valuable person on the team is someone who's high on culture, but low perhaps in performance. For that person, I've got a lot of time to think about a different role, to think about a different uh, way of approaching them, or maybe they get to work in a different part of the organization. That's a keeper for me. It's just about finding the right tasks and responsibilities for that person. Tougher are those that are low on the culture, right? So there, if someone's low, low, that's probably an easy call. And if someone's really high performer and low on culture, then it's all about coaching. And that's where coaches like yourself come in and we are, are you know, Raymond James in general is a heavy user of coaching. And, and so am I in, in my business where we will deploy coaching to move some of those folks over to the right side because they obviously they know how to do the job. It's just that they need to embody the culture and the values of it better. I love that you just explained that two by two. I think that some organizations and leaders, you know, they think that we have to use these really complex matrices, nine box, different things and succession planning and people planning. And um, you have to think about like all these different things. But at the end of the day, you are, you are explicitly telling people how they are being rewarded. It's that top box. It's performance, but it's how you did it aligned to our values. And then I love that next thing is even low performers, if they're embodying the values, if they're learning, if they're failing, if they're that ninja, um, we can coach them on, on how to, how to get the performance too. And then after that is prioritized the performance and the, the low on culture. And that is just such a clear very clear message on how do we reward performance. And I would imagine that that's then tied to merit, to bonus, to all of those kinds of things. Is that right? A hundred percent. The person who's high, high on both gets paid more than the person that has a low on their script. No question about it. And I'm very clear with the team two or three times a year. We'll put it up when we have our team offsite, we'll put up that two by two just so that everybody's clear that listen, this is how the reward system works here. Yeah, and I I think it's so easy to say you're not a culture fit. And there's a lot of companies that do that as kind of a catch-all and they they haven't done the work on values and behaviors. And I think that's the key. It, It is not rocket science. It is pretty easy to get into a room with leaders and with second level managers and and the team to figure out what are our values? What do we stand for? What does it look like? What are we incentivizing? What does it not look like? What are we not rewarding? And so to be able to do that work and then to very simply and very transparently tell people 
that this is what is being rewarded. And then for them to see that, I think that is just, it's just, you're telling them how decisions are made. And that's Correct. another way value systems work, which is just so great to hear this example. Thank you so much for sharing it. No, absolutely. And I would encourage everyone to think about bringing culture and values into their reward system because it's the only way that you get the right behaviors out. And now you will never be perfect, right? I constantly have members of my team that aren't in high, high because you know the more people you hire, you're going to have diversity. That's the whole meaning of diversity. But then at least they know and, and you know how you're going to view that human being and what can be done, whether they're a fit for you or not. Yeah. And I think people just want clarity. They want to understand what do I need to do and what does it look like? And so I love that you've modeled it, you've made it transparent and you've shown them the path. And then you've also given the support to your point on the coaching end. Like, what do we need to do? Is it manager coaching? Is it external coaching? Is it whatever it is? How are we then investing in those people that we know are getting it right in the how, but then we can follow up on um, building their, their skills on the performance aspect. Yes. Are you in a new role or transitioning to a new role soon? Have you thought about how you will transition into your new role intentionally? How do you create boundaries to sustain your energy and prioritize the things that matter most to you? How would it feel to go into your new role feeling prepared with an intentional plan to prioritize the most important things and still have energy to tackle the things that will inevitably come your way? These are the kinds of things that leaders are working on in the Catch Crew. The Catch Crew is our community to build your career intentionally, whether that means transitioning into a new role, building or reinforcing your team culture, or planning your next role. When you join, you get instant access to career transition tools, including Values First, the course, a video-based course that highlights the most important exercises from my book, Values First. You'll get the tools you need to build the life, career, and team culture that you want. Go to thecatchgroup.com slash catchcrew. That's thecatchgroup.com slash catchcrew. We're having our next monthly catch up soon. Can't wait to see you there. I want to shift our conversation to now that we've talked a little bit about values. We also love talking on the podcast about boundaries. And I wanted to talk to you specifically, like you have a very, very busy life in terms of home, work, boards, leader, all the things. And so I I don't want to ask you, how do you balance it all? But I do want to ask you, how do you prioritize things that are important to you? And how, what tools do you use to stay grounded in those? So priorities really come on a, on a, there's just three different levels of priorities, Laura. There's your life's priorities, what I call global priorities, right? For example, they may be chill for me. They're my children, my, my husband, my family. And then you're following that. For me, the priority really is making sure that health and well-being is prioritized and, and then it's my life's work. So I know what those global priorities are, but it's not as simple as that, as we all know. Right? There, there are priorities that have to be made within each of those, right? You know, within each of those buckets, there's a prioritization system. And sometimes beyond that, there's also daily priorities. You know, there's some things that you know, you'd say, okay, to say my three global priorities are X, Y, and Z, but if you have something urgent burning at work, 
guess what? You're going to slip on number two because you know, like, I'll save that workout for another day. I just got to get something out the door. So you need to be able to have a system for sorting out the noise that comes at you on a daily basis. So I have two that I use. First is tell the difference between signal and noise. The world is full of noise. It's a very noisy place. It's a lot of stuff coming at you that's trying to pull your attention left, right. And let's not even start down social media. Let's just go and go to email, right? Or Slack or Teams or what have you. So there's just so much coming at you. And so knowing what is noise that I can park that and what is a signal that I need to attend to is really important. The second tool that I use is another two by two. It's a very simple one. It's called the urgent importance matrix, right? So urgent, high, low, important, high, low. Very simple as that. So if I have 20 things on my to-do list in a day, I literally draw it out on a piece of paper and say, okay, what's in the top rights? What's urgent and important? That's got to take priority, right? I got to take my daughter to a doctor's visit. That's priority. That's urgent and it's important because she's got an issue that needs to be attended to. Or, you know, I've got to make sure that I get the presentation out for a client, the deadlines tomorrow, also urgent and important. So you, but you know, okay, that stuff has to get fielded first. But then what's important and not urgent, right? That goes next. So you know where to take your attention. I always tell people, always focus on the stuff that's not urgent and important because that, that's the stuff that really moves the needle for you. It's very, very easy to continue to work on stuff that's urgent, right? So whether it's important or not, you're just always working on the stuff that goes in the urgent because it's high urgent. But, you know, you have stuff that's urgent that's just not that important. And it's okay that we have a culture today of so much FOMO, fear of missing out, that people just keep doing the things that have short-term repercussions without looking at the long game. So that urgent, important matrix, and if you rank for you, okay, I got to do urgent, important, because that's kind of time critical and absolutely mission critical. But after that comes the important stuff. You'll always make sure that your daily priorities, whether it's in the in the children and family bucket or the health and wellness bucket or the work priorities bucket, all of that is fielded appropriately. I have a really important tool to stay grounded and I urge everybody to come up with their own tool, which is listen, make sure you do what is needed for preventative mental health and resilience. What does that mean? Listen, we go to the gym to be build out our bodies and muscles for in case we fall or in case something happens in our old age, we, we have strong bodies. You know, we brush our teeth, we put cream on our skin. We take care of our bodies so much. What do we do for the minds? How do we keep the mind healthy? We talk about mental health, but often in the context of when things go wrong, when anxiety, depression, stress hits, and then you're trying to fix, you're trying to go back. How about build the organ, one of the, the heaviest organ in the body, which is the mind, the brain, and make sure that that is strong so that it can withstand some of the knocks that come through the, the regular ups and downs of life. So my way of doing it is through meditation. I take an annual Vipassana meditation course. It's a, it's a week-long, 10-day-long meditation course. I do it once a year, every year. I've been the 11 or 12 times at this point over the last dozen years or so. And apart from taking that annual course, I meditate daily. My day starts with meditation. I Nowadays, I do it for an hour minimum a day. And now people hear that and go, whoa, I could never meditate for an hour daily. That's fine. But you know, I, when I started, I was meditating for five minutes a day. And five became 10, became 15. The muscle grew. And the ability to hold your attention and be quiet for that long grew with it. So everyone should think about where their journey starts and do what feels right for you. Just like lifting weights or building muscles, you kind of started X pounds and, and build up from there. But people find it through other ways. People find 
to build that resilience reservoir. They build it through coaching. They build it through prayer. They build it through other mechanisms. Find whatever it is for you, but make sure you do it daily. Find a lane. If you want to try a few different, that's fine. Pick the lane that works for you and then stick with it and practice it daily and build that mental strength on a regular basis. That's how I've always stayed grounded so that the downs don't knock me and, and throw me into some loop de loop in the downside. And neither do the ups, neither do the accolades and all the uh, uh, wonderful things that, that and the successes that of life. They don't take me for a ride either anymore. That I, I know that I can bring myself back to equilibrium whenever I choose to do so. And that's incredibly powerful to you decide and I decide how I want to feel and how I want to come at a situation. I'm not blown in the winds by whatever's coming my way. And that's an incredibly powerful place to be. Thank you for all of those tangible examples. First of all, I love the tangible examples. And I really like the fact that you have said, this may not work for you, but there is something that will. And so try different things. Can you tell me some of the benefits that you have seen over the years in your meditation practice of when you were in those moments? I feel like sometimes people feel, at least I do when I first, and I'm very early in my journey in meditation, I've tried it, tried different times, have had frustrations with it, come back to it. And so I have always felt, well, I'm supposed to be like feeling peaceful in this moment, but really it's not about that. It's about every other time. So can you tell us a little bit more about the benefits that you've found the practice of doing that daily comes when in the moments that you really need it? Absolutely. So, you know, there's three different benefits that are really very real with meditation and a regular practice. The first is you get the power to calm the chatter in the mind, right? That even if you feel like nothing's happening, what am I doing here sitting here with my eyes closed? I don't feel like I'm doing anything useful. Nothing's happening. Trust the process. Trust the journey of unwinding the mind and the noise in the mind. You know, the meditation course I take annually uh, called Vipassana, it is silent. People are like, how do you not talk for a week? Because otherwise I'm a chatterbox, Laura, trust me. Well, you know what? You realize that once the noise is shut off outside, actually the noisiest place on earth is our own minds, right? It's always constantly talking to us and always on the move. So, you know, if you had a, a mind that raced at 100 miles an hour and you were able to bring it down to 98 miles an hour, you slowed yourself down by 2% already. So you find a way to calm the mind down by yourself. And that's incredibly powerful. It gives you some space and some peace in, in, in between. The second is that you learn this power of objective observation that, okay, here comes frustration. And now I'm frustrated that I'm not meditating properly. Let me, let me find a way to objectively observe that and be equanimous with that, knowing that it's going to pass, that the only thing that we know for certain is change. Right, the, the, Our bodies are 20 minutes older today and right now than we were when we started this podcast together. right? And that will be you know, half an hour older at the end of the hour than we are today. It's just as we evolve, as beings evolve, everything around us changes. That is one of the fundamental laws of nature. So we know that that will change, that the frustration will not last forever. And so instead of getting blown by it up or down, why not? Find a way to be equanimous with the fact that there's frustration and not let that knock us. And that's a muscle that comes with practice. It's just a muscle. Equanimity is a muscle like any other muscle. And every practice of meditation takes you a little bit stronger and better on that journey, on that, you know, that spectrum of an equanimous mind. Certainly, I'm nowhere near there yet. And most meditators will tell you they aren't either. 
But I can tell you that I, I'm, I'm a lot stronger today than when I started my meditation practice 12 years ago. The other thing is that I found this incredible freedom, Laura, from the when the emotions do hit. We're all human. We get angry. We get sad. We get ecstatic. We get, you know, we get morose. All of those things will happen to us. But if you if you think you were sad when something un, unfortunate happened for four hours, and now because you have a practice in meditation, you're sad for three and a half, you just bought yourself 30 minutes of liberation, freedom. It's amazing. And you can choose what you like to do with that. So, you know, now when something will happen to me, I'll say, okay, I think I need like a two or three meditation sessions to get past this. And then I'll go do the meditation sessions and say, oh, no, two didn't do it this time. I needed the third. And other times I'll be like, wow, two cleared it. And now I'm okay. I'm good. I'm free of that emotion. I'm free of whatever was pulling me away from the center of gravity of my, of my life and being. So those are some of the things that have come with the meditation and makes it it makes it an incredibly powerful and liberating place to be when you know that you can get yourself through things because things are going to happen all the time anyway. I really love the red thread of even in that description, I felt like you were even talking about growth mindset. It's a journey and you're still learning and you're always going to get better and you might stumble, but you'll get back on. And so I, I really love that kind of that value is even in that practice as well. That's right. It's that, that same learning and growth mindset of a lesson. Yep, that was a really frustrating meditation session. I, my mind raced a lot. I couldn't calm that down. But, you know, let me let me try to be equanimous with just that frustration. And and next time around, I know it's going to change. And maybe it doesn't change the next time. Well, I'm after that. But five, six times later, it will change. It's just the law of nature. Everything changes. Everything evolves. Everything is in growth or decay. And that's the reality of of, of life on Earth. So just being being very cognizant of that as you go through your own human journey and that of others becomes really important. I also love the idea of the observer. Um, and I think that could even, to your point of earlier, the, the being a ninja at failure, that idea of observer could really help do that as well. Because I think we tie a lot of our failures personally to ourselves, like I am the outcome right? So that means I am the failure when really that was just the outcome. And so if we can come in with an observer's mind to really do that debrief, like you had mentioned before, I think that's another nugget that I've taken away from your description of meditation as well. That's exactly right. That objectivity that you are not your thoughts. You are not your, you know, you're not the outcomes of the work you put in, right? You've got to take a step back from all of that as you go into yourself every day and and people have different ways of doing that i have people who've done that very um very much so through prayer and through and have found effective coaching relationships that help them go there find your journey but just do it build the muscle the muscle won't build by dabbling right you can't go to the the gym every other month and say okay i'm not getting stronger you've got to you've got to dedicate yourself to a line yeah i love the examples that you have shared and i think um others that i've also heard journaling is another one just what, but find that, find that thing and try different things until, until you find one that, that you like even more. Exactly. Exactly. So, Do your research and, and stick to it and know that that path is not going to be smooth. Life is not straight and up and to the right. That's just not how it goes. You, you're going to have twists and turns, but as long as you're on a journey that you trust, you will keep making progress even when you think you're not. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So I have a, another question. I want to pivot our conversation just a bit. And I, I've been reflecting as we've been talking about like just all of the different aspects of your life and all of the different rooms that you must be in. So the boardroom, your own leadership room, your, you know, selling a company, being at a, you know, on your own, but that now being at a bigger company, can you talk about what that's been like for you at a younger age as maybe, and probably I'm assuming one of the only women in the room in many of these cases, what's that experience been like and how have you you know, woven in your values and your, your grounding yourself in some of those experiences? Yes, I am often the only woman of color, um, minority and woman in the room. And if there is diversity, it's often on my side of the table that I brought the diversity into the room with me. It's the reality of business in many places around the world, in many industries. It's an unfortunate one. It's one that we all need to learn to change uh, and do our part in changing. But it's certainly been part of something I had to accept. Now, either I could fight it and ma make a stink out of it every time I entered that room, but that wasn't going to get me or my business anywhere. What was going to get me elsewhere is by modeling what can be done. So in financial services, you hear, well, it's really hard to recruit diversity and it's hard to retain them and so on. Well, my business is 100% female run, both the number one and number two. So I'm the number one in my business and my number two are women. And 60% of my team globally is women and minorities. They have a diverse background. So my mantra is be the change you wish to see, right? It's so easy to go point the finger and say, you, you should change, you should change. Well, if I can't do it differently, who am I to go point fingers on how it should be done differently? So it became incumbent upon me saying, okay, well, now I'm building a business in financial services and private equity. How am I going to do this? So, you know, had to make a very concerted effort to make that happen. So that's step number one is that when I show up in the room and I'm advocating, I'm, I'm advocating as somebody who models a lot of things I want changed. It's really important, Laura, when you enter that room as, as the only woman or the only person of color, and in my case, only version of both that you come with gravitas. And, you know, I, I'm in my 40s, but I look younger. And when I entered that boardroom by myself, I was even younger than I am now. And it was really important that I establish myself with credibility on the, on the aspect of what we're working on, having that deep domain expertise very quickly. Otherwise, it would be clear that I didn't belong and I may not be taken seriously. So for me, the way I got around it was I, I walk in those boardrooms even today, and my whole mantra is, you know, tell them what I know, do it respectfully, do it humbly, but take that opportunity to speak up, to use my voice and tell them that I'm here for a reason. Even when I think, by the way, it doesn't mean that I don't have moments of, gosh, do I really, right? Wow, I'm on this board now, or I'm in this room now. What am I doing here? I'll have that voice in me once in a while. It doesn't happen too often nowadays, but once in a while it'll happen. And A, I'll observe it and say, okay, that 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 imposter syndrome voice is back. That's interesting. I must feel I must be feeling nervous about the situation. But I the way I come at it is I know something. I have something to say. Let me share that. And oftentimes when I share that, you can see that people are saying, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Or thank you for mentioning that or bringing that angle to the table. But unless you put your voice out there, they have no idea why you're there. 
So, you know, I've often felt that pressure that, okay, being the only woman in person of color in the room, I've got to use that voice and do it credibly and with gravitas and show my domain expertise as to why I'm here and what got me here so that I can do away with any of their conscious or unconscious biases, some of which are are unfortunately all too conscious um, all too often. And that's the way to get get through that is make sure that you, you use that voice and you use it with the depth and experience you've built over the years to enter that room to begin. I love that you, um, you unpacked what gravitas means to you, because I think that's another one kind of like culture fit that's just kind of thrown around a bit. And it's like, what does that actually mean? Does it mean act more like the men in the room? Does it? And, and I love how you've just find it. It's using your voice and your expertise. That, that's right. And and talking about how that may be different. So for example, I had a conversation with somebody just the other day where I was selling this person. They wanted to recruit more women on their board. And I said, well, you want a full-time working mom? You can't require 100% in-person attendance in these destination board meetings with dinners and so on. It just isn't going to do very well for you to go recruit that way. Think about another way, right? And this is somebody who was in his 70s and a very well-regarded chairman in in several public company boards. He was used to most people sitting across from him and listening as he lectured. I said, well, no, I'm I'm sitting here at this lunch with you because I have something to share too. And I'm going to share that because obviously um, my experience and life journey is different to yours. I respect yours. I hear yours. Now hear mine. And I think that too many women and too many people who are coming from an, an underrepresented background often don't want to share, are reticent to share. What's the worst that can happen? They could say, oh, I don't like that. I don't believe in that. Okay, no problem. You take your wear somewhere else. Uh, but staying silent, I feel, is the biggest disservice we can do ourselves and also to other underrepresented groups out there. Yeah, and I, I also love how you mentioned that you are not immune to that imposter syndrome, but that you use the idea of observer to really understand why am I feeling that way? And it's another lesson of like, okay, is it because I'm feeling anxiety? Is it because I'm worried about this? And and you kind of unpack that. And again, separating that from that is not just you. That's just how you might be feeling. And how can you work through that faster? Yes, exactly. And I, And I'll observe that and say, okay, the reason I'm feeling nervous is because Oh, everybody here is 20 years older than me and doesn't look like me. Oh, that again. Okay, well, we know how to tackle that. So let's listen for the last first 10, 15 minutes. And then let's go in with saying by saying what we need to say. Uh, or, or have, you know, I'm here to represent a group of people often, right? So if I'm on a board, it's to represent shareholders. If it's in my own management team meetings, it's to represent my business. So, okay, what is our voice? What is our position on these things? Let's let's share that. And that's, um, you know, we're often there to bring our voice on behalf of something. What is that something and go say it? Yeah, and that's your that's your role. That's why you're there. And so exactly. being able to kind of stand in that that role and be the voice of of that role is an important thing. I love how you just described also, oh, there's that feeling again. Okay, that's fine. Exactly. And you've recognized it. It potentially gets you out of a loop of thinking, oh, this again, I'm not good at this. Yes. Uh, and you're kind of interrupting that loop as being the outside observer. I love all of these like so tangible things that you really that you've taught us. 
about all of these things because it's not like, no, I never feel that. It's like, no, I, I feel that. And I'm acknowledging that I feel it again. And, right. and I'm still gonna show up to share my experience because, because it's important. My voice is important. That's, right. that's, that's exactly right. And there's so few women and there's so few people of color in these situations that it's, I do feel that I, I carry the next generation sometimes on my shoulders because I don't want to be the only woman or the person, only person of color in that room. I want many more to join me. And so it's important that I show up in the right way. And also, Laura, I want to share the message that it's okay to be different. I manage my team very differently. That culture and performance grid, not everybody manages that way. I respect how they manage their businesses, but this is how I do mine. And I, I'll talk through why I think I, I like my approach, prefer my approach, but I'm also not immune to hearing how I could do better. And my team shares how I could do better with me all the time because they know I can take the feedback. And number one, and number two, I'm not afraid of saying, listen, the way I do it with my team is I, I bring an empathetic muscle to my leadership and my management. And in sometimes my colleagues will say, actually, I, I don't, I don't want to bring that empathetic muscle and, and, and I do it very clinically. And here's why I do it with a different approach. And we can have that discussion. We can have that debate, but don't be afraid to be different because at the end of the day, that's the whole meaning of diversity. It's not what we look like. It's the differences in our thoughts and experiences. That's what's most valuable. That's right. And I love how you are just an example of modeling the behavior and to be able to model that feels like you're building a culture of feedback to where, you know, within this growth mindset, you know, one of those behaviors is I give feedback, I receive feedback, and you're probably also building just a ton of trust within all of those relationships and teams as well. Yes, that's the goal. Sometimes people join us and it's not easy for them. And then, you know, either they get they eject themselves or uh, find themselves just out of sorts in our organization. And sometimes they thrive. And the goal is for us to self-select a group of folks who thrive in that environment because it's good for them and good for us and good for our clients and business at the end of the day. Well, Sunina, I just have loved our conversation. I think we hit on so many important topics and I just love your transparency of really like teaching us how you actually do these things. Because I think sometimes it's just easy to say, you should have a growth mindset and build a team of empathy. But you've given us like so many tangible ways that you do that. So I really appreciate your examples that you've shared and your candor here today. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. I've really enjoyed it. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.